0: in a sense, truly the Lord's Prayer. I know we often think of uh, the Lord's Prayer as our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever, all men. And that is a great Sample prayer a great prayer template and at times it is quite all right to pray that prayer with a sincere heart And a humble heart to the Lord But really that is a pattern prayer It is the Lord teaching us to pray teaching his disciples to pray in a sense John chapter 17 is the Lord's prayer It's sometimes entitled as The high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ there have been entire Books written just on this one chapter. Just as there have been entire books. I have a volume of probably over 500 pages of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Great commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. That's three chapters. There have been entire books written about this one chapter. Incredible chapter. And I, with the Lord's help, Over the next few weeks, uh, we'll uh, bring a series of messages over these 26 verses, and uh, we can probably only scratch the surface in some sense, but I do hope that we can, with the Lord's help, plumb the depths to some degree of this great prayer, and that we can apply these great truths to our lives, so that we might live for God, that we might obey God, God better, that we might know him more. And really, we can break this chapter down into uh, three simple parts, three points in an outline. Christ prays for himself, verses 1 through 5, and then Christ prays specifically in the context for his apostles, for his disciples, in verses 6 through 19, and then verses 20 through 26, he prays for believers In general, so we will begin in chapter 17, in verse number one, in looking at this first point that Christ prays for himself. These words spake Jesus, and lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, "Father, the hour is come; glorify Thy Son, that Thy Son also may glorify Thee." The the commentators they debate to some degree exactly where. Christ prays this prayer from? Was he still in the upper room? Was he on the path to the garden of Gethsemane? Was he in the garden? And uh, I tend to think that he has left the upper room with his disciples and is now at the garden and is uh, stepping out into the garden to pray. And the disciples have been asked to also uh, pray with him. Uh, But that's not the main points. Uh, the exact location is somewhere from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. And though that is good background or historical information to have, that is not the main point of the chapter. And again, commentators will disagree a little bit on that. But notice what Jesus says here in verse number one. Father, the hour is come. We see Father. We see the Trinity We see God the Father, God the Son. We see Christ in his humility, praying to the Father, though he is the God-man, we see that submission of God the Son to God the Father, even within the Trinity. And that Christ humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, as we read in Philippians 2, as we know in the Incarnation. But notice He says, the hour is come. We have seen that phrase or we've seen that word hour before. The hour has come. Hour refers to Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. In John 2, in verse number 4, he said, Mine hour is not yet come. Remember in the context of John 2, the wedding at Cana, Mary was concerned because they ran out of wine. And she came to Jesus hoping that he would have an answer. He would have a solution to this great problem. We looked at this months ago in great detail as we went through John chapter 2. And Jesus, not in any kind of disrespectful way, but simply in helping Mary understand his place now as, as he is entering his public ministry, distancing in a sense himself. In some regards, humanly speaking, from his mother, now as a 30-year-old man, and entering into the public ministry, he says, "...mine hour is not yet come." Helping her to once again understand that he was about his father's business. She had heard that before when he was 12. Now as he entered into his public ministry at the age of 30, and at the wedding of Cana, in his first public miracle... He says, "My hour is not yet come. It was not time for him to go to the cross and to die and to rise from the dead and to ascend up into glory. John 7 and verse 30, he again mentions that his hour was not yet come. It's repeated again in John 8 in verse 20. But then in John 12 and verse 23, we read that Jesus answered them saying, the hour is come that the Son of Man Should be glorified. John 12, as Jesus is beginning to enter into that last week of his public ministry before he would go to the cross and die, and three days later rise again, and then 40 days later ascend up into glory, Jesus makes the statement that his hour is come. It is the beginning, in a sense, of the end in that final time of his public ministry on the earth. He has just spent chapters 14, 15, and 16 with the disciples, giving them discourses, giving them sermons, giving them encouragement, preparing them for his absence and promising the Holy Spirit. And we've looked in great detail at the ministry of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ promised. And then in John 12 and verse 27, in John 13 in verse number one, Jesus again makes mention of of the fact that his hour has come. He is now at that time where he is just moments away from going to the cross and becoming sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him for all who trust him as their Savior. But Jesus had always been on his Father's timetable. He was. Always going about his father's business. He had reminded his disciples in John chapter number four that his meat, he said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. Jesus was fulfilling the perfect will of God. He was on God's timetable. He would even say that they had no power to take his life. He would lay down his life. So Jesus, even when there were times as we would go back in John chapter 8 where they were ready to take him and to kill him, he would walk right through the midst of them because he was on the Father's timetable. They had no power over him until he willingly would lay down his life. I know that in our minds it's hard for us to to fully comprehend how man in his free will in his sin is being used by God in another sense to orchestrate the very redemption plan of God it's incredible it it causes our minds to not fully maybe comprehend these these great truths but we Accepts that tension in faith, and it humbles us, and it causes us to once again reflect upon the greatness of our God in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. We don't deserve this mercy. And notice what he prays for in verse number one. Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. So as Christ prays for himself, he asks for the Father to glorify him. He says that in verse 1. Also notice down in verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. This was not a selfish request. Especially when we consider the fact that Jesus Christ is God. And do we not pray for ourselves? I would venture to to guess that all of us do some measure of praying for our needs, for our circumstances, or whatever the case may be. Jesus was not praying selfishly in any way, especially, again, when we consider the fact that Christ is God. You think about the fact that Christ had shared the glory of God from the beginning. He just referenced that in verse number 5 with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. That even speaks to the eternality of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, which again speaks to his deity. This is again a claim to Christ's deity. And if I can once again make this point, that we are not at liberty to just make up a Jesus of our own image, of our own likeness. I'm waiting to walk through the grocery store and to see the magazine from some major news source that once again has the headline, Who is the Real Jesus? Discover the Real Jesus. Something to that nature. You've seen them. One of the major news publishing company, magazine companies, Time or... US News and World Report or whatever the case may be and they usually around Easter, usually around Christmas there is some front cover that has some question about who is the real Jesus? Who is the authentic Jesus? And I don't even bother picking those magazines up. I can't can't even handle. If we want to know who the real Jesus is, we go to the word of God. The living Word of God is Jesus Christ, revealed in the written Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same as the beginning with God. And we see that eternality of Jesus referenced even in verse number 5 of this great chapter. And now here is Jesus asking to share in that glory once again. So what is this glory that he is referring to? Okay, is it the glories of heaven? Yes. There is an aspect to this glory that he is asking to once again be with the Father in the glories or with the glory of the Father. Yes, there is the glories of heaven. No doubt that is in mind here. It is, yes, that Christ would no longer be clothed in human flesh. He would have a glorified body, a post-resurrection body that he would reveal for 40 days after the resurrection before he ascended into glory. That the very scars in his hands and his feet and his side are visible. That even Jesus would partake of some fish on the seashore with the disciples. So yes, there is that aspect of being renewed to the glories of heaven and to the, the glorified body The sinless body not being clothed in human flesh. Right now he is God incarnate. So yes, he is speaking of that. But let's go a little further with this understanding of the glory of God. One Bible dictionary defines the glory of God as the display of his divine attributes and perfections. So without making lights in any way of our God and our Savior Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, we talk about the glories of an athlete or of a celebrity or of a particular talented person. And we speak of their attributes, something that they are very good at. The characteristics that make them great, whether it be in music or whether it be in athletics or whether it be in arts or whether it be in literature and writing, We identify something about them that makes them great, that makes them unique or gifted or exceptional. Well, God is exceptional in every way. He is divine. He is eternal. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. So when we bring glory to God as we should, as 1 Corinthians 10 31 tells us, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. What is that saying? That our lives should point to the very character and attributes of God himself. So let's think about this for a minute. Christ was asking God to display his divine attributes and perfections through him as he went to the cross to die for the sins of mankind. Here is Christ wanting the fulfillment of God's redemption plan and for all of the glory of God to be revealed through him, even as he went to the cross. This is Christ's prayer. He also asked not only that the Father glorify him, but that he glorify the Father. Christ was determined to fulfill the Father's will And to glorify God in the process. Christ's death would bring glory to the Father because it would satisfy God's wrath against sin. And it would provide for the redemption of mankind. This is, again, a tension in our own minds that sometimes can be difficult for us to comprehend how this wicked act of sin of injustice, of murdering the very Son of God is used by God to provide for our redemption. For all who will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will receive the atonement of the blood of Jesus Christ. You think about it, up to this point, atonement have been merely symbolized, pictured, Represented. It had been prophesied. Now it would be fulfilled. It would be realized. Think about all the sacrifices throughout the many years of the tabernacle in, in the wilderness and at the temple in the promised land in Israel. Think about all the pictures, all the prophecy, all the representations of this sacrifice of God's son. That is even prophesied in Isaiah 53, the suffering servants. Now was about to be fulfilled, was about to be realized. Think about propitiation. God's wrath satisfied. Think about justification. Declare not guilty. Imputation, Christ's righteousness credited to our account. Reconciliation. Two enemies, or an enemy, I should say, an enemy being reconciled to God and God desiring and doing the reconciliation. All of this would be realized, would be made possible through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. That is part of the glory of God that Christ is revealing, that Christ is praying for here. These would not be provided for man. These great doctrines of soteriology, these would not be provided for man, nor understood by us as man, had Christ not come and died and rose again and ascended up into glory. We would not know reconciliation. We would not know sanctification. We would not know forgiveness. These are part of the very great glories of our God that we don't deserve. Even on our worst day, we still get better than what we deserve because we deserve hell. That's part of Christ's prayer. That's part of Christ's fulfilling God's redemption plan that we would know God. In his glory, glories of propitiation and reconciliation and justification and forgiveness. And all those great doctrines of soteriology. It is not that God would be less than God had he not sent Jesus Christ. But God desired in his love, in his long suffering, in his mercy. God desired for us as mere mortal, sinful, ungodly men. He desired for us to know these divine qualities and actions. It's overwhelming that God would do that for us. And he shared them with us as undeserving sinners for our eternal good and for his eternal glory. These are the glories that Jesus spoke of. As well as his exaltation at the right hand of God. Philippians chapter number 2, Philippians chapter number 2 helps summarize, and this is not the only passage that we'll look at, but Philippians chapter 2, we probably know the passage well, helps summarize this great truth. In Philippians 2, we read, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that the name of Jesus every knee should bow things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see that answer to Christ's prayer. Reflected in the words of Philippians 2. What about Ephesians 2? Verses 20 and 21, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. What about Hebrews 2 and verse number nine? But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. And then Hebrews 12 and verse number 2. And these are just a few samples of the passages that speak to this glory of the Father that Christ brought through his death, burial, and resurrection in His exaltation and his ascension as he glorified the father. Hebrews 12 and verse number two, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. God, the father answered Christ's prayer. Christ brought glory to the father and the father glorified the son. So we see in this prayer, Christ's prayer for himself. He asked for the Father to glorify him. He asked that he would glorify the Father. And then we also see in verse number two that Christ gives eternal life to those whom the Father gives him. So we come back to John 17 in verse two, as thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Now, this, this verse can become very controversial, if I can say it that way. And that's not my point at all. We must understand that the Father and the Son share in the act of salvation, and obviously the Holy Spirit. Though the Holy Spirit is not specifically referenced in this verse. The Holy Spirit is obviously... Involved in salvation. But we see the mutual work of the father and the son here. Christ will give eternal life. To all that the father has given him. The son. Jesus Christ. Guarantees. That all who come to him in faith. And repentance of their sin. Will be saved. None will be turned away who come to Christ in genuine faith, in genuine repentance. We get into this, I realize, and we begin to debate the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, human responsibility. And we have to once again lay those railroad tracks down and look out into the horizon and know that those railroad tracks meet and we trust that by faith. I've been in the ministry long enough that one of the biggest questions no matter what ministry I have been in, where is what is my position on the sovereignty of God and the free will of man? I remember in seminary how we would sit and we would debate this what seemed like for hours. I have been under good men good pastors who have mentored me and we have sat in staff meetings and we have talked about this. I have spent many hours in study and I still can't fully put my mind around how those two meet, but I know that they are true. That man is responsible in his will to respond to God's command to repent and yet God is sovereign And salvation is of the Lord. And I can't take, as one of my professors would describe, three watermelons. Sovereignty of God, free will of man. And you put a third watermelon in there, you never can seem to hold on to all three of them at the same time. Another one of my professors talked about two great clouds in the sky and they come together. And where are the two clouds separated when they come together? We trust by faith. Let's not make verse number two a source or a point of controversy, let's understand it that this is Christ providing salvation for all who come to him in saving faith. None will be lost. This is another text on the eternal security of the believer, but it's also another text clearly teaching that Christ is the only way only by Christ the father didn't say well you know you can get to me some other way Uh, Jesus will 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 bring some but there might be others out there who don't know Jesus there's a a, an idea in what I would call non-orthodox religious circles who they believe in a wider mercy type of theology Where as long as you are sincere enough, as long as you have some efforts on your behalf to look to some greater deity or greater presence or greater, whatever you want to call it, mystical deity presence, whatever the term might be. I just heard another one uh, recently. I can't remember the exact term that was used. And it's this wider mercy theology that you don't really have to know Jesus Christ. As long as you're sincere enough, as long as you have some efforts to understand God or a presence out there or a deity. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is clear and we see it again here that Jesus is the only way. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So there is a perfect balance here among the persons of the Trinity in our salvation that our human finite minds cannot fully comprehend. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day, as the great hymn writer writes. God the Father gives Christ the authority, the power, The word power there in verse 2 is authority. This is the same word used in Matthew 28 in verse 18 at the Great Commission where Jesus said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. All authority is given to Jesus in heaven and in earth. He is supreme Lord. He is God. Sovereign God. We see here that he has all authority, all power given unto him. And he will bring to salvation all that the Father has given given to him. This is eternal security that no man can pluck us out of the Father's hands. Jesus Christ keeps us secure in him for all who have genuinely come to him in saving faith. So then we also see in verse number three that eternal life, eternal life comes only through a genuine knowledge of God. Through Christ, Let's look down now in verse 3. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. This is a proof text that we should all memorize about the deity of Christ. This is the equating of God and Jesus Christ. This is just one of the proof texts. We've already recognized one of the deity of Christ. But we see that here again in verse number 3. This is life eternal. That they might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. This is the equating of God and Jesus Christ. A proof text for the deity of Christ. But we see here that this word know. And this is life eternal that they might know thee. This knowledge here. Is an intimate personal knowledge that comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. So there here, here again we see this exclusivity of the gospel. The only way to have eternal life is to know God through Jesus Christ whom He hath sent. It's another text. Proving again, not only the deity of Christ, but also that he is the only way. And this word, know, speaks of a knowledge that begins and continues to grow, continues to deepen, continues to widen. This word, know, is a present tense verb, it has a beginning point salvation. When we trust Christ, we turn from our sin and we turn to Christ in saving faith. We trust him in his death, burial and resurrection as our only means of salvation. The only way to God is through Jesus Christ. And then upon receiving Christ as our savior, upon that point of salvation, now there is a growth in that relationship. We get married. There is a point, maybe that point that we first got to know that person was many months or years before we actually married them. But there was a precise point when we said, I do, on a given day, on a given time, and we made those vows before God and men. And really, when we said, I love you, and I do, on that day, that was really just the beginning of our love. And as we know our spouse more, as we know our spouse better, as our knowledge of our spouse widens and deepens, it actually should increase our love for them. Not cause division and falling out of love as is so common in our culture today. Here we see this knowing Of God through Jesus Christ speaks of a present tense knowing an ongoing relationship that is growing that is deepening that is widening it's no wonder that Paul uses the phrase walk or the word walk and uses various phrases using the word walk in his epistles because Paul understood the ongoing nature of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We call it progressive sanctification. And as believers, we are in that progressive state of sanctification. All of us are at various degrees in our relationship with God, but all of us should be growing. And even when we slip back, backslide, whatever you want to call it, we should get right with God and get back into fellowship with him and continue to grow and to learn and to deepen that love and that knowledge of God. Philippians 3 and verse number 10, Paul writes that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Philippians 1 and verse number 9, Paul prays, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Now word judgment is also a a word that can be translated discernment. Paul uses phrases walk in love, walk in the spirit, walk worthy, walk as children of light, walk circumspectly. Speaking of the ongoing nature of the Christian life, our knowledge of God grows and widens and deepens. We walk there, as I've said many a time, there are no moving sidewalks in the Christian life. We go to the airport and we are thankful for the moving sidewalks. Maybe you're thankful for the little golf carts that come by and offer rides. But in the Christian life, we don't have moving sidewalks. We have the personal, spiritual disciplines of nurturing a personal, vibrant, intimate relationship with God that goes and grows and continues until God takes us into glory. We don't have an excuse for not growing. We don't have an excuse for not loving God like we should with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh, our love wanes, waxes and wanes. And we're ashamed because the distractions of the world and the feelings and the emotions and the trials and the tribulations. And we live in such a sensual me first culture that it's all about our feelings And how we feel about this and how we feel about that. And if we don't feel right about a person anymore, if we don't feel like we love them anymore or whatever the excuses are. We don't have those excuses in the Christian life. We can't wake up one morning and say, well, God, I don't feel like I love you anymore, so I'm not going to serve you anymore. We don't have that excuse. We can't say that. And here is Jesus praying. Praying even to the father. On our behalf. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And if God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, then should we not know him, continue to grow and to serve him and to love him more and to love him better? And to be holy as he is holy? Colossians 1 verses 9 through 11, for this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work. And increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, and to all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. That was Paul's prayer for the people of Colossae. Should that not be our prayer? Not only for ourselves, but also for our spouse, for our children, for our grandchildren, for fellow church members. I have to admit that it's my prayer for our church, for each and every one of us. That we will increase in our knowledge of God, that we will walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, and doing so with patience and long suffering, with joyfulness. We also see here in verse number four that Christ finished the work God gave him to do. I realize in verse four, he's still speaking prophetically of what was to come shortly. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. He knows that his hour has come. He is going to fulfill God's redemption plan in his death, burial, and resurrection, and his exaltation. He is, yes, prophesying, but he is praying toward that, and he is submitting once again to the will of God, which would involve the cross and all the pain and all the suffering on our behalf. To the point that at John 19, in verse 30, as Jesus is on the cross, he will say, it is finished. That is a phrase translating one Greek word that would be stamped on a tax receipt. Saying, paid in full. Now, we are in tax season. And not only do we want a tax receipt that says, paid in full. Though the government, they want every penny that we own. They're looking for every way they can to get everything that we work so hard for. And they're hiring 87,000 more of them to come after us, right? But we want on that tax return to at least say paid in full, right? We would love to see refund. (laughs) But Christ, when he said it is finished, he says paid in full, The wrath of Christ, excuse me, the wrath of God was satisfied. God's redemption plan was fulfilled so that we might know justification, reconciliation, forgiveness, and all those great soteriological doctrines that we benefit from so undeservingly as ungodly, wretched sinners. Yet, he loved us died for us, and paid that ransom for us. Paid the penalty, paid the price for us. I have glorified thee on the earth, he says. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. A quick application. Are we of that same mindset that God, everything that you have given me to do, I want to do it. Show me. Teach me, O God. Guide me. Show me, Lord, help me to do thy will. Is that our prayer every day? Do we have that same zeal for the Lord, that same motivation, that same drive, that same determination, that, Lord, I want to do your will. Are we willing to pray as we sing, as Emily so beautifully played, as you're all on the altar? We'll sing it, but do we mean it? Do we live it? Jesus Fulfilled the Father's will completely, fully. He finished the work which thou gavest him to do, which God gave him to do. Verse 5, let me close with this. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. As we come to this final verse in this first part, of this high priestly prayer. We are reminded once again. As Christ prays for himself. He prays for the father to glorify him. And that he. Will glorify the father. And he would. Fully. Completely. And once again. Reminds us. Where are we at? Are we. Seeking to glorify the Lord. To exalt to draw attention to all that God is, to all who He is, to His divine attributes, to His holiness. Are we living a life to the praise of His glory? Or do we just mouth the words? Do we just sing the words? Or do we really mean it? Do we really live to the glory of God? Jesus prayed that He would glorify the Father, that the Father would glorify Him. And they did. As the Trinity, as God the Father, God the Son, and obviously with the work of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, fulfilled God's redemption plan. And the fullness of God's glory was shown forth in Jesus Christ, even down to the cross and the tomb and the resurrection, and then His ascension into glory. And now He has gone to prepare a place for us. And we, in the meantime, are to occupy... He comes we have this responsibility right now to glorify the Lord to live for his glory. Let's pray Lord we thank you for this wonderful prayer. May it renew Lord our desire to glorify you in everything that we say and do that whether we eat or drink or whatsoever you do or whatsoever we do may we do all to the glory of God. We thank you God, for sending your son, Jesus Christ, for glorifying him and Christ glorifying you that we might know you and the free gift of salvation. Lord, there's someone here who does not know you as their savior. Lord, may they come to you in saving faith and turn from their sin and turn to you in saving faith today. If there's a believer here who is struggling in their Christian walk, Lord, may they seek your face and Lord, find renewed fellowship with you that they might serve you obediently and faithfully. And Lord, may each of us desire to be that living sacrifice to fulfill all the will of God. And we thank you, Lord, for this scripture that helps us, that reminds us, that points us once again to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll look in your hymnals and find hymn number 497, we'll... Stand, and we'll sing just one stanza of Search Me, O oh God, 497.